I received a text this week. Um, well, actually, Eddie got the text because I've been getting text messages and phone calls for Eddie for as long as I've had this 210 area code phone number, which actually we moved from Okinawa to Biloxi, Mississippi, and we all thought we'd retire or end up in San Antonio someday, so we got 210 area code numbers, and I still get these numbers for Eddie. But Eddie was invited to a rally slash protest slash parade that was happening this weekend here in San Antonio, and I thought, well, I read it, scanned it quickly, and I decided that wasn't something I wanted to participate in, so I quickly deleted it. But I wonder, how did the word get out on the day when Jesus made this triumphal entry into Jerusalem? Because uh, the gospel reading today, if we were back in the lectionary, which you know I've been in James for now five weeks, but today's reading comes from uh, Mark, the 11th chapter, and in it is the description, and it's really interesting if you, if I've preached multiple times on um, this Palm Sunday, or sometimes called Passion Sunday, it's the way you look at it, which scriptures you read. But there's a lot of intricate detail on getting, whether it be the colt or the donkey, uh, for Jesus. And all this information, it doesn't give a lot of information about how did the word get out. Did they get text messages? I doubt it. But eventually these people came out, and what did they do? They, they took their coats off, it says, or their outer garments, and they took branches and laid these branches down and made like the Hollywood red carpet for Jesus to enter into Jerusalem. And along the way, they're shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna. You know, here is the, the Son of God. Not exactly, if you want me to read the Mark exactly passage to you. Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. I mean, that's some powerful stuff, right? Exciting. And then Mark, unlike some of the other gospels, gives this very anticlimactic ending to this wonderful parade. Many of you, I'm sure, have been to parades or you've marched in parades, and after the parade, there's maybe some kind of celebration. But here it says in verse 11, Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Big celebration looks like ahead. Big parade well, there's nothing going on here. I'll go back with the boys. Those same people that shouted Hosanna, most commentators, most preachers, I know I've said it, in one week's time would go from shouting Hosanna to crucify him, crucify him. And we may not have been in the crowd in Jerusalem that day, but our lives many times reflect that same irony. On Sunday, we say, praise him, praise him. And on Friday, we take his name in vain. Today, as we return to James, the true hearers and doers of the word must be careful not to deceive themselves, thinking that they are pious, or if you want to use the word, religious. If you have your Bibles, you'll know that we've been working through the book of James with an overall title of a faith that works. Because James has become, I believe, for Christians today, as much as many of us don't want to touch it, don't want to preach it because it gets in your face, it is a primer for a faith that is alive and working in modern day times. So, James helps you 
test the validity of your faith. Because a living faith is a working faith. And I've given you several different title headings. But in these two verses we'll look at today, the 26th and 27th verse, the last two verses of chapter 1, is a reoccurring theme. And if you know, in these past four weeks, I've talked about that most people who try to dissect and parse out how James is composed, say it goes in different places. I believe these two verses are the pivotal verses that you'll find reoccurring over and over. It's like the chorus, if you will, of the song. The verses change, but you come back to the chorus, and everybody knows the chorus. And what he's arguing back and forth is that if you have a faith, you're going to be doing something with it. A genuine faith, he will say, must manifest itself in three different elements. That of controlling the tongue, doing helpful things with your hands, and having a clean heart. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to get ready and turn into them and look at the fact that a faith that works is genuine. Verse 26. If anyone considers himself religious, I think King James says anyone seems religious, but if I think consider to, is a better uh, translation. If anyone considers himself because we all have opinions of ourselves, right? Well, I think I'm a pretty good Christian. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> I think I go to church on Sunday. I must be pretty good. Well, if you consider yourself to be religious and do not keep a tight rein on your tongue, he deceives himself and his religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Let's pray. Lord, as we look at a familiar passage that maybe at times we've minimized, maybe we've even omitted it, from our way of thinking. We live in a country that takes care of widows and orphans. We pay taxes to do some of those things. James tells us that what we have in our hearts, we will live out in our deeds. And where our hearts are, Lord, there our treasure is also. You've told us that. So, what treasures are we tending to in this earth, on this world, in our town, in our church? Today, speak to us as we consider a faith that works being genuine. Find genuine faith in us today, Lord. If we don't have it, help us to reclaim it. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The word that James uses to translate religious or religion in the Greek means careful observance, to be devout, external practices. And for years, I have heard and probably participated in the verbal wars that compare and contrast religion and faith. 
How many times I've heard people say, I'm not religious, I'm a Christian. It's a way of life. It's a relationship. Like religion is a bad word. Let me throw this slide up. I'm trying to make a simple distinction here that might help us. And this is just a Cliff Perry. And some of you go, well, you're really wrong. We can argue this later. But I think this will help us if you distinguish between faith and religion this way for at least the rest of James. Faith is personal. It's internal. For some, it's very difficult to explain. Religion is external. It's community. It's what you do with what's in your heart that you live out every day. So in other words, what we believe, what we live out in our voices, in our hands, and in our hearts is what James is challenging us to say. It should be a reflection of what's in the heart. One writer I read this week said that religion is the language that you use to express the inexplicable things in your heart. So, let's begin with the first outward attribute of a genuine faith that James says is the tongue and the control of the tongue. Now, those of you who have been here these past four weeks know that I brought out a special tool from, many have come from my wife's tool, <laughs> wooden toolbox. Some of you have given to me, some I'm still trying to work in. I've had this one for a while. I wanted to use it because James talks about this again. But as I said, these are reoccurring themes. These three things that I, I'm going to talk about today, they're reoccurring throughout this, these remaining chapters. But for those of you who have never been around horses, thank you, Joe Wynn. What is this called? Anybody? Twitch. A twitch. Spelled like switch with a T. Could I have a volunteer from the front row? <laughs> There's a Marine for you. He's pointing at you, Wade. <laughs> so my understanding, uh, it, and I even watched a video that I was going to play for you, and it would be so painful, I think, to watch it. Uh, it this is a way to calm a horse without medication. You would take the upper lip of the horse's mouth, which my lips are big enough, but I don't think I get that much in there. And then you would pull the, these fingers, pull the horse's upper lip in there, and start twisting. You get the horse's attention really quick, and then you're able to do whatever you want to do. I mean, I guess shoe it. Is that would be something? I don't know if you do this, but if you have a horse that's in distress. Not that more, I'm not encouraging you to add more distress to yourself, but that is a way to uh, control the upper lip of a, t of a horse. And I'm wondering, should I break out a twist like this for my, there's a twitch for my, my own tongue? And, and on the fr front pew this morning, I was thinking, I, I should have brought some kind of application for what we could personally use. And then I thought, well, I got those bulldog clips that I put on papers in my office. You could have one of those in your pocket all the time because when you can't control your tongue, maybe you ought to clip one of those things on it. It's an ongoing battle for all of us to control our tongues. There is a uh, British... Uh, radio personality, kind of like the British version of Howard Stern, one of these 
shock jock guys who talks to people on the, on the radio trying to get everybody's attention. And I stumbled on him this week. This actually had, happened about 10 years ago. His name is Tim Shaw. And, and while he was interviewing a centerfold-type uh, lady um, on his midnight show that goes on between 11 p.m. and 1 a.m., he said something to her that he would leave his wife and two children for her if, he would, if she would only run away with him. His wife, Haley, heard that. They'd been married at this point, I think, about 10 years. And she immediately went on eBay, posted his Lotus Esprit Turbo, twin turbo car. That's why it got my attention, car. Black, of course, I love black cars. And posted it with no verbiage other than to say, buy now for 50 pence. No, not, not 50 pence, which is about like 99 cents for us, less than a dollar. Buy it now for that but must be picked up within the next two hours. Within 30 minutes, it sold. She said to him, she was tired of him not understanding the value of his words, the power of his words, his inability to control his tongue or his, his disregard for what he was flapping his tongue trying to get more listeners, and she actually did sell that. I mean, you can Google it and look it up. Um, twin turbo Lotus Esprit, or maybe single turbo. Nick will probably correct me later how many turbos it could have. Car was worth over $50,000, and she got about 50 cents for it, or 90 cents for it. Um, the concluding uh, little article I read about it said that uh, he may not have, it must, no good words came out of it except her eBay comments. You know, you can log on, customer satisfaction, quote, Four days after the event was sold, uh, she got this. Thank you, Haley. The car is excellent. Thank your hubby for me. <laughs> what can we do? What can we do to control our tongues? I was reading another book this week. On yeah, I'm trying to find out other things to illustrate with you. Uh, one family had recommended that you have a Sabbath of the tongue, a day of Sabbath. And what this family had done is... On, on the Sabbath day for them, Sunday for them, um, they were no longer going to criticize anyone. My, my, earpiece. my ear is either too small or it's too bent. I don't think it's too small. There you go. Um, they, no criticism allowed on Sundays at their house. I'm like, man, that would be great, wouldn't it? <laughs> no criticism. You can't critique the preacher. You can't critique your lunch what you wore, what anybody else wore, how long it went, what's on, what you're doing, et cetera, et cetera. In fact, this family had started doing it, and they said they did it intentionally with their teenagers. And within six months, they found out that more teenagers were coming to hang out at their house on Sundays because critical talk was not allowed, no criticism. Well, here are some simple steps that I came up with this week, and, and I, I won't really claim any originality. Um, you can find these if you Google different ways to control your tongue, but some of them, I think, as I tried to uh, just compile them, very helpful ones, is the first one is to daily ask the Lord to help you to control your tongue. Daily. As you begin your prayer, as you begin your day, Lord, help me to consider what I say today. Read the verse from last week. 
Be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Lord, help me today. Second, ask God to make you aware of the power of your words. The good and the bad that you can do with your tongue. We talked about getting in arguments with our children. How much you can help or hurt your child, your spouse, your your work environment by your powerful words, good and bad. Number three, surrender your right to complain. What? I heard somebody say that. What do you mean? That's a part of being American. I got to complain about everything. Just be silent. Four, ask for forgiveness for any unloving words or attitudes you have expressed. If you're going to speak, maybe forgiveness should be one of the topics you talk on. And finally, practice words that will encourage, comfort, and edify and inspire others. You know, the there's a chaplain friend of mine. I am not a golfer. Most of you know that. I'm, like I said, I think a couple weeks ago, I, I owned a set of clubs. We played one time. He was a collegiate golfer. In fact, we're, he had this very brightly colored golf bag the day we went golfing. I said, man, the, surprised you picked that out. He goes, oh, I won it the last tournament we played in. I'm like, oh, great. <laughs> Why am I doing with you? Well, luckily, it was one of those best ball days, you know, where four people or three people hit, hit at the same time. And who, and every time I, whatever I swung at, and whether I missed the ball or put the ball on the green or even got lucky and it went straight, he was so complimentary to me the entire time. He was just like, great shot, Cliff. Way to go, man. You sure you didn't play in college? <laughs> yeah, I'm sure, yeah. <laughs> I know you are. Practice being in helpful, uplifting, edifying, comforting. All right. Control of the tongue. Second, hands. Hands. A faith that works is genuine with hands that help. Let me reread to you that latter part of 26 and the beginning of 27. He's talking about if you can't control your your tongue, he deceives himself and his religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this. To look after orphans and widows in their distress. Oh, James, so all I have to do is take care of the widows and the orphans? And I always said in a prayer earlier that the government takes care of that. I must be good to go. No. John Calvin, another one of the great reformers, explains it this way. James does not define generally what religion is, but reminds us that religion without the things he mentions is nothing. My takeaway is this. James explains that God is more concerned about the way we treat others than with compliance to rituals. He doesn't care that you wore the three-piece suit on Sunday. If you walk by someone in need and never stop to see if you could help. In my office is the seventh edition of the Handbook of Religions. Now in its 14th edition, that's how, long, how old mine is, it covers over 250 denominations. Mark, that's back when the Air Force Resource Board used to send books out. 
Um, it covers all these different Christian denominations in the United States. I remind you that we are Southern Baptists, one of about 34 Baskin-Robbins of Baptists, you know, 32 flavors, all these different types of Baptists that think they have it the right way. That handbook of denominations, I'm sure if you're attending that church, you think you have it the right way. Well, I've I got a broad enough shoulder to say, I don't know that we have it the right way, but it's the best way I know to live out the faith that Christ has called me to live. But James cuts through all those denominational ties and says, how do you treat your neighbor? Well, do you have praise songs or do you have traditional songs? I don't care. How do you treat your neighbors? Do you have responsive readings? Do you say the Lord's Prayer? Do you recite the Apostles' Creed? I don't care. How do you treat your neighbor? How do you treat the widows, the orphans? Those in Jewish society who were without income. Most women had no way to earn a living once the husband died, especially if there were children at home. Very similar today. If, if, if your husband dies or your spouse dies and, and you have young children, you're probably going to find it very difficult to work and, have, and take care of the kids. Unless you, you know, can find some other way or good insurance policy or maybe you had a professional thing to set up. But in any event, in, in Jesus' day, and as, as James is writing... These were the element of society that Jews considered at the time how they would be judged as a community. How well do we take care of these? And, and throughout the Old Testament, and now transferred into the New Testament, is this focus to say, take care of these who cannot take care of themselves. Their existence depends on the generosity of those that live around them. And James uses the Greek word catharsis for pure, when he says pure religion, meaning unmixed, clean, without contamination. It's the word that we get catharsis from, which is the process of releasing or finding relief from strong or repressed emotions. And for some of you, it might be golf, it might be fishing, it might be running, it might be reading, it might be music, it might be chopping wood. But it lets you clean out of your heart, out of your head, and out of your body to focus in on what you should be doing. Well, James is saying, you want a definition of pure religion, it's focused in on others because of how Christ is focused in on you. Helping hands of the genuine faith build up, lift up, support, encourage, carry. They do not destroy, they don't tear down, and they don't break apart. Helping hands. Helping hands will do more than, wave, I started to wave this, waving a palm. They will serve. Helping hands will embrace. Helping hands will come together and pray. You know, Brenda and I ate at uh, Waffle Houses all the way from Illinois to Florida. Well, only we saw them driving there for our honeymoon. Uh, I can't hardly pass a Waffle House these days without thinking of the, that, that journey and those precious memories. But I read uh, this week of a tale of a Waffle House in two years ago, it was 2019, where uh, a reporter had come into a Birmingham Waffle House and uh, sat down to, to order, and he you know, quickly noticed how busy it was and that there was only one man named Ben, uh, by his name tag, uh, that was doing everything. 
I mean, he was the cook, he was the waiter, he was the dishwasher, he was the cashier. Somebody had messed up, obviously, in scheduling. And here's this guy, people wanting their orders, people waiting on their food, people waiting for tables to be cleaned off. And he said he was getting ready to get up when he saw a man he said, I call Blue, because he had a blue shirt on. Had no idea of his name. But Blue got up, started bussing tables, took them behind the, the bar. If you've ever been to one, they're, they're the old-fashioned, more of a diner set up with a bar. Took them in the back, started stacking the plates, and even asked Ben how to wash some of the dishes and started washing the dishes. And he said, eventually, a lady in high heels, and I could just hear the high heels, you know, in my mind and imagination, I could hear the high heels walking around. She started assisting Blue in the process. And he said that was the finest example for him of community in action, helping hands, helping one another. They didn't blow up at Ben behind the bar. I'm sure somebody probably said something they shouldn't have said. They didn't control the tongue, but now they were at least working together. Um, And not knowing how this would tie in, uh, where'd Sandra go? Sandra and John. There you are. Yesterday, they moved from one house to another, and uh, I picked up Pierce, and I knew Dan would be there, and I thought, well, you know, maybe be a couple others. We got there, and there, there was like a moving company there of, of friends, church members, family members, and I think we had you loaded. I was checking the watch. I think we had you guys loaded like in less than an hour and a half, and if I could have, you know, quit Dennis from drinking water, which I know he doesn't drink water, we probably could have been loaded in an hour. I don't know. Right, Saul? Yeah, I mean, and what, what a wonderful, I mean, if you could have a video of that, that's what helping hands, that's what genuine helping hands are involved in. Finding a need and going about it. When we all come together, it, it, it's really that faultless, that pure faith that James is talking about. So, let me go back to faith and religion for just a second. If your faith says witness and your religion, that's what you do, never does, then you're deceiving yourself. Norris, here's one for you. If your faith says tithe and your religion never follows through, you are robbing God. If your faith says pray, read the Lord's Word, and your religion never takes time, you are lying to yourself. If James says, help the widows and orphans, look around and offer a helping hand. Finally, heart. James closes out his three points of faith applied to pure religion being, you know, that of keeping your tongue under control, having these helping hands, by saying you should keep your heart spotless. Avoid being polluted by the world. Well, I have a little video. I think it's two minutes long. And I know, I think uh, when Zach and Kathleen, I think Kathleen was from Montana, right? Wasn't she from Montana? I, I have these visions of Montana being this pristine, beautiful, you know, like almost Alaska. Take a look at this. 35,000 tourists a year visit the Berkeley Pit. A century ago, this was called the richest hill on earth. It was the Anaconda Copper Mine in Butte, Montana. 
It's not rich anymore, and it's not much of a hill. In the 1950s, the mine changed from digging underground tunnels that followed particularly rich veins of copper to just excavating everything, turning the hill into an open pit on a scale that is difficult to convey on camera. There were whole neighbourhoods destroyed to make way for this. It is a mile wide and so deep that you could fit the new One World Trade Centre standing upright in it. Or at least you could if the pit wasn't halfway filled with toxic dilute acid. It kills any birds that land in there for too long. In 2016, thousands of geese died in one night after a snowstorm forced them down there. The team here let me get a little bit closer than the tourists do. Some studies were done to try to figure out how long a bird can withstand sitting on the pit water. And those studies found that it's up to 18 hours. Six to 7,000 birds come through and utilize the Berkeley pit as a resting stop per year. Um, we're on the overlap of two major flyways, so it's to be expected. Could you tell me what that was? So that's a propane cannon. We have them on timers and they run 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Hopefully deter the birds from ever considering landing on the water of the Berkeley pit to begin with. If the birds land, we have a crew of personnel that observes from this shack on the hour. They log them and then attempt to haze them off. The go-to is high-powered rifles. You have that ability to hit very close to the birds from a very far distance away. Um, and it's not so much the boom as you would expect that scares them, but it's the projectile hitting the water, creating a large splash, and, and that's what usually does it. And in the case that we know a large flock of birds is coming, we can have continual fireworks to deter the birds from entering the pit area. And we get almost all of them. Yeah, we are over 99. That's all. I let it go there. It goes on further. You actually pay $3 to go uh, take a little tour of that. And no disrespect to Montana at all, but uh, to be so close to a toxic pool that the birds can only last, I think he said, 18 hours if they would rest on it. Why do we as Christians think that we can swim from toxic pool to toxic pool in our world and not be contaminated and risk death just like those birds? And I know showing you that video, some of you, you know, you saw the guns and you thought, there's a job I'd like, you know, shooting at birds and I don't even have to hit them to scare them. And, I, and I've kept thinking, well, you know, that's, that is a Christian job. I can see there are a lot of people who like to tell other people that they're in the toxic world or they're being damaged by the world and they like to light off like guns or fireworks. But we are in danger when we allow ourselves to swim in the cesspools of the world. Now, some of you say, well, Jesus, he, you know, socialized with sinners. Yes, but he did not allow that sin to contaminate him. And there's nothing wrong with going into dark places to uh, help and reach out and to bring the gospel to others. But when you find yourself in these toxic pools, realize that your heart will be damaged, that it will be impossible almost to keep your heart clean. I've said back and forth that James repeats his brother, Jesus. Let me share with you just a, a short section where you have a great example of ritual religion versus pure religion that Jesus comes encounter with in Mark, the seventh chapter. Pharisees had accused his followers of not doing the ritual washing before eating. And they've talked about what defiles a man. And, and Jesus says, and I'll just pick up at uh, verse 19. 
for, <clears throat> let me go 18. Are you so dull? In other words, are you so naive, dumb, if you will? Don't you see that nothing that enters a man from the outside can make him unclean? For it doesn't go into his heart, but into his stomach, and then out of his body. He went on, what comes out of a man is what makes him unclean. From, for from within, out of a man's heart, comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and make a man unclean. Avoid the world's pollution. One last story, and I will close. I worked on the highway department. You probably heard me say that, the Illinois Department of Transportation, all four summers while I was in college. And there were, uh, they may be watching, I don't care if they do, because they would get a hoot out of it. There, there were several saddlers that worked. You know, small towns, same name, you know, you know, who, you know somebody, got to know somebody to get a job. There were multiple saddlers, like a couple of brothers and a couple of uncles or at least nephews or whatever that worked on the highway department with me. And, or I worked with them because I was a temporary hire in the summers. And w- one of the first things I saw them do uh, one day is we were driving down in the big orange trucks and they had a soda or whatever it was. might have been even a styrofoam coffee cup. And as soon as they were done drinking that refreshment, they rolled the window down of the big truck and threw it out the window. And I'm like... But what, what would you do that for? That's job security, boy. Well, there's no need for job security or to self-pollute yourself when it comes to sin. Sin is alive and well in this world. The corruptiveness, the, the, the spots that this world can put on your heart are always out there. And Christ is always faithful to forgive and to wipe the slate clean in your life today. But don't intentionally go into that toxic cesspool if you can help it. And if you found yourself slipping into it, go back to the Lord and ask for forgiveness. Because a genuine, a faith that works is genuine and it has a heart that is all about keeping itself pure for Him. Stand with me, please, as we pray. Our Father, as we come now to a time of invitation, this... Uh, passage really hits us between the eyes. How do we control our tongues? What do we do with our hands? And how are we keeping our hearts pure for you? I pray, Lord, that there's someone here today who knows that they are in danger of sinking into that toxic cesspool, that, that toxic water, that they would grab the lifeline that Christ can throw out to them. Or, Lord, if we're here and we've considered ourselves very pious at times, very very religious, very upright, very spiritual people, help us to look today at our hearts and say to ourselves or find the answer to, what have I done for those outside of my home, those outside of my life, those outside of my inner circle of friends? Have I found the need in my community and have I applied the gospel to that? Lord, I ask you to help us to monitor our tongues. We'll find that James will tell us that you can't praise the Lord with one tongue and curse him with the other. We only have one tongue. So let it be focused on you. 
Speak to us, Lord, in this invitation time. Let your people move. Let your Holy Spirit rain down, for I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.